The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Learn to quiet the noise of the ego and connect to the truth of your soul. Join former monk and host of the Practicing Human podcast, Corey Mascara, for Living in Alignment, a weekend workshop live stream, live from Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, June 28th through 30th. Rebuild your life from a place of embodied listening and quiet knowing. To learn more and register for this live stream, go to eomega.org thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Today on the Radiate Wellness Podcast, I am thrilled to radiate the afterlife with Dr. Raymond Moody. You may recognize Raymond Moody's name as the father of the modern near-death experience movement. And his pioneering book, Life After Life, originally published in 1975, transformed the world, revolutionizing the way we think about death and what lies beyond. Raymond's new book, Proof of Life After Life, co-written with Paul Perry and with a foreword by Eben Alexander, reveals evidence of the afterlife through their study of shared death experience. Welcome, Raymond. How are you today? Well, I'm just doing so great, and I've just enjoyed so much in the last couple of days getting to know you over the phone. What a great treat for me to be talking with you today, and thanks to the folks listening in, too. Oh, yeah. I'm so appreciative that you accepted the invitation and granted this interview. I've been on cloud nine for days. This is exciting. Well, you better ask my wife about that. She'll say, you know, the image of the man is one thing, but the day-to-day reality, (laughs) my fault itself, like all the rest of us. But thank you for that thought. You know, I have been kind of following your career and what you've been doing. And you've got this new book, Proof of Life After Life, that I think is so fascinating. I was telling you a moment ago that my dad died December 1st of last year. And so I'm just really curious what he is doing now in his life. How did you get started research? Well, it's the funniest thing. I think that this all came about because I had essentially no exposure to religion when I was a kid. My dad had been a medic in World War II in the Pacific Theater. And they didn't talk, that generation didn't talk about such things. But in retrospect, I surmise that the reason he must have been so sarcastic about religion was that what he had seen in the war. But anyway, from my point of view, I, I was interested in astronomy. And what I got interested in 
very early in life was the fact that this world we're in doesn't make any sense, right? That how big is it? Well, your mind goes out to the wall, but you say, just a minute, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of a wall, right? And then, so you know, that doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't that I was an atheist or anything like that. It was just that I never thought about God. My mind was on astronomy. So I went to the University of Virginia at the age of 18 in 1962. And I had been interested in philosophy in high school. So I took a philosophy class and immediately got hooked on Plato's Republic, which culminates with this amazing story of a warrior who was believed dead on the battlefield. But during his funeral, he sat up and he was revived. And he told people standing around about it that he had taken this amazing journey into another world. He got out of his body and went through a passageway and, and so on. And so I was just so intrigued by that story because the notion of an afterlife, I'd never been exposed to it except as like a cartoon. I, I didn't realize that anybody thought of it as serious. And yet Plato, who was this immediately my hero when I started reading his work, the fact that he thought that this was the most important question of existence. So I started studying this. And three years later, I met this wonderful man named Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry there at UVA, who had had such an experience. And I listened to Dr. Ritchie tell about his experience. And that was the first of now thousands of people I've talked with. And just gradually over a period of time, I just realized, holy mackerel, I can't think my way out of it. A lot of people say, oh, this is the oxygen deprivation to the brain. You know, these people have their heart is stopped beating and they're having all these things like getting out of their body and going through a passageway and seeing a light. But that's just the oxygen deprivation to the brain, they tell. Well, see, I had been already familiar with that argument from the time I first started reading about this because Plato believed, well, you know, this is a reality, but the guy who was roughly living at the same time, Democritus, who had figured out that there were atoms, knew about these same experiences. And he said, oh, it's just the body appears dead, but there's still residual biological activity. Today, we call it oxygen deprivation, but it's the same argument. But see, what really turned me around on this was one of my own medical school professors. I went on, I got a PhD in philosophy, then I taught philosophy three years. Then I went to medical school. Just shortly after I entered medical school, and my professors already knew about my research, one of my professors came up and said, you know, Raymond, I had this experience myself, not when I was almost dying, but when I was trying to resuscitate my own mother. She had this same experience. And subsequently, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were there at the death of someone else. They were not themselves ill or injured. And yet they had all of these same things that we hear of as constituting a near-death experience. We're talking about getting out of the body and going through a passageway into a brilliant light and seeing one's relatives and friends who have died there to meet and greet you and to undergo a panoramic review in which you see every single event of your life detailed right there in front of you. See it from the other people's perspective, right? You say, 
and then, and therefore, if you've done something mean to someone, then you feel the sad feelings, or if you've done a kind-hearted action to someone else, you feel the good feelings. So this is something that people are threatened by many people. Many people find it comforting, but there are other people who just say, no, it can't be, it can't be. And there are certain people who are just firmly resistant to the idea that there's anything other than what they can see from the material world. So it's been a process to me, but I finally just, I really give up when the people standing around have the same experience as people who are ill or injured and who having a near-death experience. And something else is going on than oxygen deprivation to the brain. But the trouble is we don't quite have the conceptual systems yet to think about it. Right. For me, I give up. I mean, I just, I can't. All my life I've been pretty good at thinking my way out of things, but I can't think my way out of as I gather that there is an afterlife. Yeah. I mean, this is the age-old question, I think, probably why we have religion in the first place, to try to figure this mm -hmm. out. My dad, of course, he started out as an atheist, and then he mm -hmm. wait, I can't say that. I just don't know. Yeah, that's where I was. I wasn't an atheist. It's just that my dad wasn't religious. I just never had much exposure to it. And my dad, later on, after I sort of left home at age 18, I went off and hardly, just rarely came back home. But my dad did eventually start going to church, but then he had another reversion. And I think toward the end of his life, he, had, he was back in that same situation. So when we have a near-death experience, of course, we don't have anybody who's actually died and then told us what happened. That's right, well, by definite. But is the near-death experience a religious experience? No, it's not. And I find that so interesting because over the years, I can't, I, obviously, I ask all the people and I've interviewed what sort of background they had. And it doesn't really seem to make any difference as to whether if someone is religious, it doesn't seem to make any difference whether they have a near-death experience or not. There are plenty of people who say they just no contact with religion at all appreciably and yet who have these same experiences. So it's something different from religion. But as kind of you were kind of implying there earlier, I think that these experiences might have had something to do with the origin of religion. Because obviously these things go far, far back. And you can easily imagine in the prehistoric world that when these kinds of experiences happen, which seem to be part of being a human being, then it, it might well have been that this was the origin of the idea of an afterlife. Right. And so, as you said before, the near-death experience is not a physical thing. It's not the oxygen deprivation. No. And it's no. not a religious experience. No. I so what is the purpose? What, what is it? Well, I tell you, before I could answer that question, I'd have to go up on the mountain and burn incense and wear a turban for a while. You know, I mean, I don't know. Where I've come on this is that even as a kid, I realized looking through a telescope that I love learning and knowledge, but in reality, I'm never going to know much of anything. But where I am on this, I'm confident that, and personally, oh my God, this happened. And at the same time, you know, I'm just not into trying to persuade anybody else of it. I think people have to go through this process 
and come up with their own ways of thinking about it. And I certainly would not want to try to persuade anybody else of this, but I went through a long process of myself, just sort of one by one, kind of realizing that I couldn't come up with any way of thinking about this that's very plausible, except to say that when we die, there's a kind of witch over of consciousness into some other realm of existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that realm, do you think? Well, I'm thinking that we can't really know for sure while we're here, but I think that the best indicator we have is the stories that the people who come back from close call tell us. And Evan Alexander that you mentioned, my friend who's a neurosurgeon, he had a, such an experience some years ago. And several years ago, I asked Evan, I said, here on the earth, we have our basic orientation dimensions are time and space, right? And I said, people with these near-death experiences say that where they go, there's no such thing as time or space as you and I appreciate it. So I said, well, what are the orienting factors there, Evan? And he said, love and knowledge. And that's very consistent with all the people I have talked with that people say in that zone, knowledge is a whole different thing that in effect, you entertain a question. And then the answer is immediately there before you. Now try to think of a person uh, named Raymond Moody back in the 70s, talking with lots of these people. And you think back on the information technology that time. And you think, I was hearing from these people say that, that all you have to do is to think about it and the information immediately appear. Now flash forward to 2023, and that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because now, I mean, I had this, my wonderful daughter about seven or eight years ago, she was eating cherries and she looked at one of the pits and she said, if you plant this, does it grow a cherry tree? So I started on, well, you know, I think that I've heard that to have a cherry tree, you have to do a cutting. But before I could even get that out, she punched a few letters on her phone and she said, it says that you can, but the cherries don't taste as good. So what these people were saying in the 70s seemed so bizarre, but it seemed much less unusual today because of great expansion of the information network. It's so funny. We were talking about this, you and I, the other day, Raymond. There are still people who have not heard, even though we've got richness of information that we're just marinated in, there are still people who have not heard of your life. Of your death experience. I know. And I hear all the time, oh, these things are just people hear about this and then that's what they say. But no, I was buried. Some years, I helped out a cardiology. This was back in the 80s, but there was a cardiology group and one of their patients told them this story and they had never heard of it after his resuscitation. And they hadn't heard of this, but they asked around and then they found out about me. And so they were so intrigued by this that over a several year period, whenever they had a patient that they had resuscitated, that they would call me in to talk to them. And just as you're saying, I just was astonished how this was the 87, 88, somewhere in there. And it was amazing to me that since I spend a lot of my time in the information world, and generally speaking, the patients of this cardiology group were 
as you would expect, businessmen, high-powered people. And it was interesting to me that very few of the people I talked with that they referred me to had ever heard of this. It was completely baffling to them. And they were always uniformly happy to hear that other people had experienced this as well. So I think that you and I, for example, we spend a lot of time in the media, but there's lots of other people who almost consciously avoid learning anything new. So it's kind of not surprising in that context that there's still a lot of people who are not familiar with it. I'm astonished. Every, ever so often they have these surveys where they ask people on the street, like, who's the president? And always an appreciable number of people have no idea who or how many branches of government. I don't know. And so if you stay informed like you and me, then you know all these things. But it's hard to imagine the truth in this, which is many, many people out there don't follow the news or anything. They may watch the football games or whatever, but they're not really very informed. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, I've interviewed quite a few people who've had these near-death experiences. And from your research, there are things that are very common across the experience, but everybody's experience is going to be different. So what do you think this commonality is about and why are there significant differences? Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a coworker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
there's about, say, 15 or so common elements. If you listen to hundreds and hundreds of stories, you'll see that they're made up of about 15 or so common elements, like hearing the doctor say, oh, he's dead or we've lost or words like that, and then leaving the body and watching the scene of the resuscitation from a point of view above and proceeding through that dark passageway into a bright light and with feelings of great comfort and joy and peace and just almost a palpable love and seeing relatives and friends who died who are there in spirit form to meet you and then undergoing the review of one's life. And even beyond that, people who have these extremely lengthy cardiac arrests that go along, go far beyond what seems to be medically possible. I mean, I had a dear friend who, according to her physician that I got to know well, was dead for 40 minutes. I mean, and yet she came back and was better than ever. So something is wrong with our understanding of that state between life and death. Because that five-minute rule is definitely, it's a very good rule of thumb. But there are these extraordinary cases where it doesn't make any medical sense. And in those cases, people go even beyond this into seeing different layers of existence. These extremely lengthy cardiac arrests, people sometimes see what they try to describe as an institution of higher learning. They say that you see into an entire realm where people are pursuing knowledge. And even beyond that, into a realm of sheer light, people say that if you can imagine a civilization that's not constructed of stones and cement, but is constructed of sheer light, and people say that the people in there are just all these enlightened beings. And so there's this vast range of phenomena that make up near-death experiences, and one person may have two or three or four of these things or seven or eight or nine or some rare people even have this whole panoply of 15 or so things. And in those cases where they see this crazy, the 15 thing, those are the ones where the cardiac arrest goes on to some unimaginable portion. It's like I knew a man who was sent to the morgue. It was a weekend, and when they did the autopsy the following Monday, when the scalpel went in, he twitched. And so he had been in the morgue a whole weekend. Oh. And, and so, you know, these things don't make any sense medically, but they happen, which means that we need to expand our understanding of this astonishing state where people are kind of here and there. Wow, that is amazing. You know, some of these things that you're talking about, like going to a, a whole nother community where there's education, learning, and higher institutes, and some of these things, I see this in the hypnosis sessions that I conduct. I'm a... I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that we can kind of get into those zones while we're still here. So how is that possible that we can get into these zones while we're still alive? I don't know. I don't know. But I think where I go back with this is I think these questions, one real difficulty we get into with this is that what that indicates to me is that this world is not as it seems. And I figured that out when I was a very young kid, that I can be sure 
And remember having this thought, even when I was a very young kid, that I can be assured that I am conscious now. But the reason why we infer that there is an independently existing physical world is because of commonalities and regularities in our experience, right? And so the inference that many people make here into the existence of an external physical world, I've never been able to make that inference for myself. And that is, by the way, the genuinely skeptical position. Mm -hmm. In reality, what we can be assured of is our immediate sense impressions and our consciousness. But it's very iffy to make inferences beyond that. A lot of these people who say, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Well, I am disgusted by that remark, not because of my interest in near-death experiences, but because I love to teach ancient Greek philosophy. And what those people show that by that statement is that they know nothing about what skepticism is. Skepticism was invented by Pyro, P-Y-R-R-H-O, who was uh, one of the Hellenistic philosophers. He accompanied Alexander the Great to India, for example, to date him. And the skeptical method is a way of avoiding conclusions. That's what it means. And the great David Hume, who's one of the greatest philosophers of modern world, who greatly influenced Einstein, for example, he made this remark. And I can tell you from heart, having learned this as an undergraduate philosopher, he said, as to those impressions which arise from the sense, what we see in our apparent sensory world, as to those impressions which arise from their senses, their ultimate cause is, in my opinion, perfectly inexplicable by human reason. And it will always be impossible to decide with certainty whether they arise immediately from the object, which is, see, that's what these so-called skeptics think. They fall for the illusion that object they see out there is the reality, okay? But Hume says, whether they arise immediately from the object, like the so-called skeptics say, or are produced by the creative power of the mind, or are derived from the author of our being. And that's where the genuine skeptic still is. And they just don't know. I mean, there have been a lot of thoughts over the years, beginning maybe with Plato's myth of the cave, right? He said, we're in the situation of people who've been raised in a cave and they see only shadows down there. And uh, I think that's a distinct reality. So these questions that you and I are interested in, I think that they don't have scientific answers, that these are still big philosophical questions. And uh, I think Kim is right. It's like if you fall for the phenomenal world, like what you see through your senses, you can't call yourself a skeptic because it's a big inference to go from the phenomenal world of our senses to the materialist picture of the universe. And by the way, I'm a great lover of science, astronomy being my main one, but I'm interested in particle physics, all of those things too. And I understand that. But the question is whether the whole scheme that we're seeing is some kind of illusion projected by our own minds or projected by God or however you want to think, or maybe even some entirely new way that we haven't conceived of. So I don't know, you see, is the easiest thing for me to say, because I'm a skeptic. And the skeptic means that you don't draw a conclusion. So I realized fully, 
I was a professor of logic and I love logic. And in reality, there is no way that you can draw the statement that there is a life after death from a logical process as a result of a logical conclusion. That's out at the present state of logic. However, where I am on this is that when I just give up, I, I can't think my way out of it. You know, I talk to these thousands and thousands of people, including, by the way, some of my dear friends who are physicians. And I am an addicted exerciser. All my life, it started running, but in 1985, I realized, uh-oh, well, I might get a knee problem. So I started walking instead. But I am just into exercise. I'm totally addicted. Okay, and so therefore, the thought of hurting my foot is a terrible thought to me. Now, suppose, and I, God forbid, that I did have an injury to my foot. Okay, I'd have to seek out a doctor. Okay, I have a friend, Anthony Chikoria, who is a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU and who has a PhD in physiology. Would I go to Anthony to look at my foot? Absolutely. Okay, now... Let me tell you something else about Anthony. In 1994, at a family reunion, Anthony got struck in the head by lightning and, oh. and, had a, yeah, and had a cardiac arrest. And during this, had one of these typical near-death experiences. He went all around looking at seeing his relatives who were there at the reunion before they knew that he had been struck by lightning. So just amazing experience. Now, I could give you a dozen other friends of mine who are physicians, okay? And I would say that same thing about them, that absolutely, I would trust their medical judgment. And yet every one of them says that unanimously, they tell me that not only was what they experienced real, but it was more real than what you and I are experiencing right now. And that's what people with near-death experience say, that just it's not like a dream. It's the opposite of a dream. Like they say, when you're waking up in the morning, you feel like you're coming back to reality. And that's how people with near-death experiences feel, except that this life is the dream. And so what I'm getting at is that I just can't think my way out of how do I compute that my medical colleague's unanimous judgment about the reality of their experiences was that it was more real than real. And yet I would put my life in their hands if I had a medical issue. See? So that's what brought me around to it. But, and I realized that's personal. But there aren't any logical rules by which we can infer that there is a life after death. And so the only way left for me is not I just from the joint experiences of all my medical friends who agree that this is the reality, then I just have to give up. I mean, it's still very counterintuitive to me. I mean, I understand all the logical objections and such, but personally, it's kind of like your speech. What else can I say? It looks to me like there's an afterlife. I would have to agree with that. You know, something I really admire about you, Raymond, is that you are not afraid to say, well, I just don't know. That's the easiest thing for me to say. And it happened when I was seven or eight years old looking through a telescope. Because even then, I was really into learning stuff. But I realized when I started 
my astronomy interests that I love learning and knowledge, but in the big picture, I'll never know much of anything. That's okay. That's okay. There's so much out there to know, and there's no way that we could ever know it all, ever. Yeah. You know, Bernard of Clairvaux, I think it was, he did. Some people speak to know for the sake of knowledge, and that is curiosity, basically. Some people seek to know, to be known, right? Or to make an impression on others. And that is vanity. (laughs) And some people seek to know, to help others. And that is love. And fortunately, due to my own childhood experience, I've never been in that middle category because I know to what stupidity, not vanity, but stupidity to make some claim that know a lot, right? But I'm still firmly in that category of seeking to know for the sake of knowledge out of curiosity. But over the course of my life, I've gotten more and more into the point of view that everything I know, I want to learn things because of the potential of helping others with it. And then not only for the sake of knowledge, but also for the sake of helping others. You know, I listened to you on the Monroe Institute's podcast And the conversation was primarily about consciousness. And consciousness is something that's difficult to wrap your mind around, but it seems like... Oh, is it ever? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems like this pursuit of knowledge is part of that consciousness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Conscious knowledge is what we're into. And I think that one of the problems in making valid inferences about the afterlife is that one is consciousness in the first place. And where I have come to it is, well, found many people psychotic. But give me a little chance here to say that maybe this is not so crazy. I was a forensic psychiatrist is what I most enjoyed doing, but I was also interested in geriatric psychiatry. And I've been a year working a couple of days a week in a geriatric clinic for the people in the small town who I mean, it's just not nice to have to, for the chief of police or the mayor or the town celebrity to have to appear in the waiting room of the mental health clinic like the rest of us, right? But anyway, so the provision is made to have a place where the town officials and all can come and spill out their problems and so on. And, and I was in that situation for a year and not talking with these very distinguished elderly people. Who were there mostly, it was loneliness is why I finally concluded, just wanting somebody to talk to or situational stress, whatever it was. And repeatedly during that year, I heard this reflection. Raymond, the older I get, the more I have the impression that when I look back at my life, that it's been a kind of story or play or drama or movie or novel or whatever they would say, but like drama or play. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that is basically the nature of consciousness. There's something, and the cinematographers call have something, I think they call it the Kulikov effect, as I remember. And what they've discovered, if you take any two random images, say like a pair of glasses and then a Diet Coke can, all right, and you present those two images sequentially to people, that what the mind immediately starts doing is it starts weaving a story to collect, to connect the eyeglasses to the Coke can. And I think that narrative, see, consciousness itself, it has a narrative vector. 
whenever any new thing happens to us, what does our mind do? It starts weaving the new event into our continuing life story, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I think that means is that the thing we're in is a kind of like a theater, for want of a better term. David Hume, the arch skeptic, made the most devastating critique of the notion of an afterlife that's ever been performed. He said, by the mere light of reason, it seemed difficult to prove the immortality of the soul, which is a great understatement. But then he goes on to say, some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And what's he getting at is that really it, the whole notion is incomprehensible. But in that same essay, he said, I think that the only view of the afterlife that a rational person could entertain would be the notion of reincarnation. And Hume didn't say why. He just left that dangling. But what I think he probably, why he came to that was that Hume was better known as a historian, right? So, and historians understand full well the role of narrative in human affairs. I mean, that's what history is about largely is the narrative of the past. And so I think that's kind of right. I was talking about this notion a few years ago down in a Hindu ashram. Actually, very nice people invited me down. And I was, um, when I made that remark to the group, the Swami said, yeah, that's what they had come to themselves, that they think that these are stories that we're living through and that apparently you die and then you go through some incomprehensible process and then you're back on another storyline. And that's where in 2023 I am, then I think that kind of makes sense that, well, one reason is that both of my kids have reassured me of it. I have assured me of it. Both of these kids, we adopted at birth and we're not religious. Okay. We never took these kids to religious stuff. Also, my wife and I don't talk about life after death. We talk about what's for dinner, <laughs> the phone bill, what's all the movies. The kids learned about my book by looking me up on the internet. So my point is that I can be absolutely assured I was already in my 50s when they came around. They were very observant. And both of them just spontaneously related where they were before they came to us in such a way that my wife and I, oh my God, they were right in what they said. And so again, I give up. It just looks to me like this life is story. I've come to it as I say, we are God stories is what I think we are. And I'm really intrigued by the fact that when people have these life reviews that this God or this Christ, the being that they're with them to sort of help them the life they've been through, that the being is fully aware of their life story. Yeah, right. Now, that brings a question that I had for you is that some people do see their religious icons, be it Jesus or yeah. or Muhammad in their near-death experiences. Is that because of their expectation that they would see these people? Well, what I have come to on this is not much different from when I, the attitude I had when I wrote my book was that I talked to them, I wrote, talked roughly 150 people at that point. And now I've talked to thousands and thousands. Okay, but my impression is still the same, that it doesn't matter whether somebody is or is not religious, and it also doesn't matter which particular religion they have, if they're religious. 
and, but all have pretty much the same thing. But it comes with this proviso. They say, look, there aren't any words for this. Okay, this is the most common thing people say is no matter how well-educated or fluent in how many languages they say, I just don't have the words. But they say in telling you this, since there are no words, I draw words from my, what religion I had, but it's far more than that. They come back, generally speaking, a general tendency is that people come back. If they were religious, it's much more universal. It, kind of like saying that, well, no religion has it right, but I can use these terms or these insights from that particular religion or not, you know, but they point out that the words are not adequate, but that the only words that they have are the ones that they came up with from their religion. Amazing. Now, some people, after their near-death experience, they have special gifts and talents. I know two people that I've talked with. Mm -hmm out of their experience painting and creating music and oh that's interesting yeah i've not met a music person yet but i've met several artists who had never take the paintbrush to canvas <laughs> and yet because of their near-death experience in toronto decades a couple of decades ago i met this elderly woman who brought her big leather case of painting to me and to my lecture and she said she was an award-winning artist in Canada, but she said she had never had any artistic interest or talent before her near-death experience. And then that brought on the creative talent that was very obvious in looking at her painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, David Ditchfield, who I've had the pleasure of interviewing two times, is from England and near-death experience after being... I haven't met him, but I've heard a lot about him. I, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. Great guy. But he came out of his near-death experience and he wrote a symphony when he had no training in music. A symphony. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was caught in a subway train, as I recall. Yeah. A train. Yeah. Amazing experience painting. But then also he felt guided to write this symphony, basically depicting his experience, but also categorizing yeah. the music that he had heard, which Eben Alexander also had heard this beautiful music when he had his yeah. and wanted to recreate it afterward. And then Gilad Bulet, who I've also had the pleasure of interviewing, she came out of her experience channeling and she could channel Theo, who was a... Yeah, it opens up help people didn't know they had. It opens up areas of the mind that people were not previously aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've just seen it so many times. There's very few of the people I've told that I know before their experience, right? Right. But you can hear from people who did know them before to witness this transformation of their lives and personalities from what happened to them when they almost died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's almost like Richard Dreyfuss and Close Encounters of this kind that they feel riven to do this. They this compulsion to write the music. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't heard of that I can recall of a musician, but I've known quite a number actually over the years of painters who came to this from uh, who developed a phenomenal art talent due to their near death experience. This Dr. Anthony Chicoria I mentioned this. Oh my God, I wanted Anthony Chicoria, the professor of orthopedics at NYU. 
the Anthony had never had any interest in music. But after his near-death experience, he just developed a fascination with the piano. And he kept having this recurrent dream in which he was performing a piece of music on a concert stage. And he repeatedly said, well, you really need to learn how to transcribe music so you can write this down. So Anthony did. He learned and he wrote this piece and now he performs it on stage as a concert pianist. So Anthony Chigoria, yeah, this is a really phenomenal story. And I bet it slipped my mind. I was saying that I didn't remember any musical talents that emerged. But yeah, Anthony, absolutely. It just slipped my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. We come back so transformed from this experience. Yeah, Anthony, I think, not too long ago, performed a concert in Vienna. Oh, and again, had never, never had any interest in the piano before he had his near-death experience. It's crazy. Oh, it is crazy. I'm glad you used that word because these things don't make any sense. And yet, I think they are probably the most important things about life. I think they are. Because this is a huge question about what happens when we die. I know my dad had these questions. Unfortunately, he passed from the flu in his last few days. He was so out of it that he couldn't really talk about it. But for years, he just asked, what happens when we die? Yeah. What would you tell him? Well, he knows a lot better than we, you and I do now. So to try to imagine what I would have said to him before he died, I would have kind of been in the same boat, just curious. I could tell him what people told me, but I began to sort of recognize that for many of us, this is what happened. But then beyond that, you don't know. Well, however, a lot of that question is sort of canceled out by the fact that people say that there's no time anyway, that once you pass over, there is not time or space, as you and I appreciate it. It's, as Eben was saying, it's love and knowledge. It's love and knowledge. But you've done your research and you've written extensively about this subject. So what have you found that does happen when we die? Okay. All right. What I can say to them is that from my study, what I say is just get rid of that idea that you might have in your mind that your consciousness goes to zero. Yeah. That rather what happens is that your consciousness is greatly expanded. And it's expanded outside of the framework of time and space. And what is that you enter into a space of love. Yeah. And that it's a, a place that no matter how articulate that people are, they say that there are no words for it. And yet when they use words, the words are very similar. That this experience of the progression of going into a space beyond or a, to a state of consciousness beyond space and time and sort of overwhelmed with love. Mm. What about the serial killers? What about Hitler? I don't know. I don't know. And I was forensic psychiatrist, just the most wonderful job of working in a unit for the criminal insane. Probably as a very conservative estimate, I can say that I've talked to Say 300 people who committed homicide, most of them, the, like the people you read about in the National Enquirer, right? Who was like one of my patients, ground up his mother and father in a meat grinder. I mean, he was paranoid. And so, number one, what I came to realize is that is a sickness. 
Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that any punic comes from a thick neck. And as to the serial killers, I just don't know. I never, I had a lot of sociopaths that I've interviewed over the years. And you can't get to the inside of the sociopath because it, like, whatever question you ask a sociopath, they will try to figure out what you want here, and then they play that back to you. So you can never get inside of them and, like, understand what that inner world must be like. Right. But so the answer to your question is, I don't know. I don't know. I think that it's kind of beyond my pay grade, right, to talk about what might have happened to Hitler or Stalin or any of the other strong men who've done a lot of destruction. I don't know. Yeah. Have you spoken to any of them who've had a near-death experience? No, that was very interesting. I, out of all of the uh, homicide, the killers I've talked to over the years, and I, I never asked, right? You're afraid to, if you ask, you might create a story, right? Just So I've never asked anybody while I was interviewing them about homicide. But whether they did or didn't, I don't know. But I've never heard of any of the people that I knew who had near death, who had committed homicide, none of them ever spontaneously related to me a story of a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Now, I have heard of people who have had near-death experiences and they come back changed in the way of before their near-death experiences. They were not necessarily a nice person or a good person, but when they came back, they were... Uh -huh. Yeah, is that common? Well, I have only known one person before and after their near-death experience. And as long as I remember, there were thousands and thousands, but one I remember very dramatically. When I was doing my psychiatry residency, part of my residency was I did a few months in internal medicine, okay? And in that connection, when I was studying hematology, working in hematology with a hematologist, called to see this young woman who was in the hospital and she was pregnant, near-term pregnancy. And he had a low platelet count. And so there was a worry that when the delivery, the bleeding, okay, and so they were trying desperately to fix her. Well, then, you know, it's residents, you rotate, right? And so then I rotated off of that ward. Now, this woman was a wonderful young woman. I mean, just really a very nice person. I remember her appearance very well. She's just a very nice young woman. Okay, now, flash forward three years. And in the middle of the night, I was sitting in the hospital cafeteria. And all of a sudden, this person, I mean, I hardly have the words. This light presence, this very light young woman just whooped in her. And she was very thin. But you know, what you felt was the kindness and the sweetness came in. And she just plopped down in the chair beside me. And she said, oh, Dr. Moody, she said, you don't remember me, she said, but I, several years ago, I was in the hospital with a platelet problem when I was pregnant. And she said, after you left the ward, I delivered the baby and I had a cardiac arrest because of the bleeding. And she said, I had this experience. And she said, I was trying to tell the nurses and they said, oh, that Dr. Moody, he was there a few weeks ago. He talks with people who've had this. But I can attest, this was an I didn't even physically recognize her. It was the most astonishing transformation in a person I've ever seen. And she was a nice person, but this person was a very deep, the depth 
of that offer and from somebody who wasn't very deep into this totally transformed personage from the NDE. So that is, and obviously I just don't have the words to express what that difference was like. You know, I've watched a video of someone who's had this near-death experience and she seemed like a very nice woman, but she said Mm -hmm. after her near-death experience, she just felt that transformation. So I think I know what you're talking about. And she talked about look at everyone after this experience as if they were a child in terms of this unconditional love to a child. And she was able to pull in a new way and just give them unconditional love. Wow. Yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah. It does impart a certain maturity of people. It really does. And also, it's important to realize it doesn't make them perfect. The finest person I ever knew in my life was Dr. George Ritchie. And George was the first living person I ever heard a near-death experience from in 1965. He was a professor of psychiatry at UVA. And I had learned about these near-death experiences from Plato and Democritus. And I never realized that there was still something that happened to people. I thought it was something to do with ancient Greece. But one of my own philosophy professors told me that this Dr. Ritchie had such an experience. And Dr. Ritchie would often talk to student groups. So I went to one of his lectures about his experience. And immediately, this was whether his experience was real or not real. I just had no rational means to decide. But I knew that George Ritchie was just this amazing person. And to this day, he's the finest person I ever knew in my life. And George is like in 19, we eventually became very good friends. And in 1977 or 78, somewhere around there, George told me, he said, you know, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more a burden in a way. And what he was getting at was even after this profound vision of love, you're still a human being. And George was a very kind person. He wouldn't say the words that I'm going to say now, right? But my summarization of this, from hearing this from hundreds of people of near death, with near-death experiences is, who tell me that even after this profound vision of love, you come back and you are still embodied in a body with all those same hang-ups. And as I like to say it, it's very difficult to get through the average day without wanting to choke. At least one person, isn't it true? Right. No. And that, well, I mean, I'm being a little loose there, but in the sense that we all have aggression issues and thoughts. But the point is that these people go on a program of, and I've seen so many of them over the years. I know they really do genuinely become dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge and learning and also to, uh, cultivation of love and learning how to love others is what it's all about. You know, it's George would sometimes get very, he kind of explode and such, you know, but he was just a wonderful person and he was a human being. And that over the course of a life, I think from my judgment is they do a lot better than most of them. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Just shift the subject just a little bit. In your new book, Proof of Life, you talk about a shared death experience. What the heck is that? Well, it's very common for people who are there at the bedside of somebody else who is dying 
that as the person in the bed passes away, the bystanders themselves will have the same kinds of features as we call a near-death experience. For example, the bystander may say that when grandma died, I myself got up out of my body and I went up toward this light that grandma went into the light and I came back. Or people will say that as their loved one was dying, that they would see the apparitions of the dying person, loved one come into the room or the room would fill with light. And I've actually had quite a number of cases where the bystanders actually empathically co-lived the dying light review of the person who passed away. And that's why I said earlier that, you know, this thing about, oh, this is the oxygen deprivation of the brain. It, that not correct because if that were true then why would the bystanders who are not ill or injured have the same experience so something else is going on trouble is that we can't figure out what it is and with our current logic but you see these people who get into this debate about oh is it life after death or is it the brain without oxygen it like people are so accustomed to that form of debate, it gives them some sort of security. So I've noticed over the years, I've been talking about this for decades, but it's like people just won't hear this because their way of thinking about it is wedded to this idea that it's got to be either a life after death or oxygen deprivation. Oh, yeah. All right. So, but, and people are not going to get out of that, especially the morons who call themselves skeptics. It, you know, I mean, the reason I say that is not anything to do with your death experiences, but I call them morons because I love to teach Greek philosophy. And when I get to the skeptics, it's a very important philosophical movement, sort of came around after Aristotle. But when I get to the skeptics, then I have to undo the damage that have been done to my students' mind by these totally uninformed people who call themselves skeptics. Where did they come up with that word? They don't know what it means because it means that the process is to really bear down, to ask every question, to examine the issue logically, and then in the end, to avoid drawing a conclusion. That's what it means, folks. Now, when you say, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences, I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. What you have just said is, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. See, that's a self-contradiction. And that is a moron speaking to you when they say something like that. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the fact. By definition. Yeah. You know. And to me, it's funny, too. Many of these people who call themselves skeptics are entertainers. Which I was too for a while. I'm a comedian. I don't have anything against entertainment. I almost had a career in entertainment. and I went to psychiatry instead. But the fact is that entertainers don't know what a skeptic is. They should realize that and stop using the term because it complicates things for people who teach philosophy. Well, I'm so are surrounded by many such morons these days. I know, I bet. I bet. Well, they are morons. I'm sorry, because it's an ignoramus to use a term to identify yourself with a term that you don't even look into the history of it. Absolutely. Well, in a way, this is why I invited you to be on the show today. Because <laughs> it said 
there are still people out there who don't know about near-death experiences, don't know about the, your body of work, and who might not know who you are. And so I think this is so important. It really is. And this is one of the big things, that, the, one of the big questions of existence. And I think it should be handled with deep respect mm -hmm. yeah, and not made the topic of people who are terribly uninformed even about the basic terminology they're using. I agree. You know, this is something that we're all going to experience. Maybe not a near-death experience, but we're all going to have the death experience. And we're very curious about it. Yep. And the question arises from what you just said is why some do and some don't. And I don't know. I don't know. I thought Plato had a theory about that. He explained it in terms of what you call a, an event boundary, which is an experience you've had, I've had, everybody's had. An event boundary is where you are in the living room, right? And you decide you want to go into the kitchen to get something, right? Well, what happens to you when you go through the door into the kitchen? You forget what you came in there for, right? And that's an event boundary. It has to do with the way the mind processes information. And so Plato said that's what happens when you go from there to here, there's an event boundary. And even though you may be trying to hold it in your mind, when you cross over, you forget it. And it's kind of the idea is that it would be too confusing otherwise, right? But if you had to keep both channels going at once, it would be too confusing. So the mind forgets. But I don't know. I don't know. That's the thought. That's what Plato thought. Well, the idea of we go into another room and forget what we went in there for, that happens to me all the time. So that makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, it makes yeah, that's right. To going from this place of all knowledge into birth where we forget everything and then going from life into death where we forget many things too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like I could talk your ear off about this, quite honestly. So I don't want to bore everybody with an overly long conversation, but is there anything else? haven't talked about that you think is important to talk about? Well, I think we've covered quite a lot of material now, so, and I'm happy to come back at any time, so. Oh, I'd love, know. there's so much to do. I really appreciate the people listening in, too. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you, everybody who's tuning in to this podcast. I hope it sparks some interesting conversations amongst your friends and loved ones and helps somebody as they are approaching that last day to perhaps take a little bit of the fear out of the process. So Raymond, thank yeah. you so much for joining me today. This has been wonderful. It has been wonderful. And again, I want to thank all the people listening in too. And thank you so much for having me on your program. Oh, thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com.
I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.